Welcome to Simply Why, a podcast about money and purpose, where we pull back the curtain on running a financial advisory business focused on providing intentional advice to couples and families. I'm Dennis Morton. And I'm Katie Brown. Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Hi, and welcome back to the Simply Why podcast, where we talk about money and purpose. Today, we're going to talk about the mistakes that smart investors make. This is something we talk about a lot because we work with so many intelligent clients. We talk to so many people who are highly successful, yet they're still prone, as we are, to making some mistakes that can sometimes cause financial harm. There's an actual cost to them. Sometimes they just cause unnecessary anxiety, and sometimes it shows up in relationships. So we're going to talk about those things today. Katie, let's kick it off. What are some mistakes that you see smart people make when it comes to investing? The easiest, most common mistake, and we see this both with clients, but I'm I'm going to admit advisors can get caught up in this sometimes too, is that that recency bias. Acknowledging, all right, this is happening in the market now, and then assuming that going forward, we are going to be in the same type of market environment. And that can be a risky place to be in because if you if you let that start to eat away at your thought process, suddenly you may find yourself making decisions based on the world around you rather than your personal financial needs. So I, I think that's a, a very common mistake that a lot of people make. And that's been a really difficult one in the last few years because if you're looking at charts of how high the market went, how low it went, how fast inflation rose, how fast you know, interest rates r- rose and fall. If you start projecting those things out when things are moving so steeply, you can find yourself very wrong very fast, mm-hmm. which I think that's happened. You know, we've, we've still talked to people who went to cash at some point in the last few years, expecting there was going to be time to get back in and they're, they're caught flat-footed when they don't get back in. It just it sets you up for maybe the next mistake. That is one though. I mean, we do often talk about that and I think we we try to push against that and we try to really encourage people to to zoom out further. And I think when it comes to mistakes in general, I think that's typically a good exercise regardless of the type of mistake. Take a second, back up, look at a bigger picture. Bring in more voices, bring in more outside perspectives, but allow yourself to zoom out a little bit further and and sometimes it helps to put more context around what you're looking at and what you're considering making decisions on. But I, I think that recency bias is absolutely a very common one. And then I'm going to say, I think another mistake that we sometimes see is underestimating the value of advice and outside advice. Yes. And you're, you're right. And I'll make a distinction here between just advice, which I think is intensely personal in most cases, and just listening to smart people. Because I think smart people often hear another smart person and think, oh, that that's advice. That's what I should be doing. Not necessarily. Be careful. I'll never forget. I was talking to someone. I was having a, a financial planning disagreement with someone. I was in a conversation with someone and they, they wanted to do a particular strategy. And I was not so sure that was the right thing to do. And they pulled out this line. Well, my friend is the former Federal Reserve Governor of New York, and he told me I should be doing blank. And I thought, just just because someone is an economist does not mean they know what your social security strategy should be. You know, it's just just because the person is smart, A, they can't predict everything. Two, they don't know you. Right. 
And that's the most important part of it. So I think they, we try and listen to smart people and we, and we do, we have to stay informed. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of advisors get caught. They find a, a strategist that they like. I listen to this person because they're always right about the markets. Be careful about that stuff. Right. Right. And sometimes it's a matter of not only allowing that outside advice to come in, but allowing it to come in from different angles. We work very closely with a lot of CPAs and a lot of attorneys. And there are plenty of times where we think there's a good strategy solution to explore. But as we expand that conversation, there's something that a nuance that maybe we overlooked or didn't understand, or, or it gets outside of our expertise when it comes to the specific tax or legal advice. And so getting those multiple outside perspectives. I have an example of one too with a client family that I worked with and they had some great meetings with uh, their attorney and they decided that they wanted to gift some property to their children. And so they went through the gifting process and there are a lot of great legal reasons of why to do that but they didn't understand all of the other financial reasons, capital gains exposures that goes along with that, that some of that cost basis will follow. And so getting kind of part of the equation, but maybe not the full equation to make that solid decision. So I think it's really important to lean on your trusted advisors, but recognize that you may need more than one opinion to make a solid decision. Yes. A lot of times we want that silver bullet that one person say, just go do that and you'll be fine. And it's, it's simple, but rarely that easy. Right. So another thing that clients, smart investors and advisors are susceptible to is emotion. Yeah. There's fears, anxieties, fear of missing out, fear of loss, all those things jumping in, it can turn into action and action and that's driven by emotion and investing is rarely a good combination. Yes. Because sometimes the expectation is that we need to do something heroic as investors. Like we need to buy right at the bottom or we need to sell right at the top. And you kind of get caught on that roller coaster of like constantly thinking that there's something that you need to do. And advisors are guilty of this too. We, we, we kind of create this perception that we're going to be heroic investors and do all the right things. But it's a lot more boring than that. <laughs> it's more boring than that. But it's also, I, I do think for some families that we work with, and, and people have expressed this to us as well. So a, a lot of families that come to us are people that have managed it themselves. So they have managed their own wealth. They have built their own wealth. They've gotten it to a point and they have recognized, okay, there are a lot more decisions to make. This is more complicated. The numbers are bigger than they used to be. I need to work with an advisor. And we go through a whole process of how are we going to work together? What are our philosophies around planning, investing? What are the fees, et cetera? Something I think that is often underestimated is the amount of stress and anxiety that is removed when they don't have to be the one to pull the trigger. They don't have to put the trade in. They don't have to free up the cash. We will do that for them. And you can have that sort of cold disconnect, which... I think is really, really important because I think that feeling of anxiety is a mistake that a lot of investors make where they don't take an action maybe when they should take an action or they take the wrong one, like you said, from those those emotions driving it. But if we can pull out the emotional piece of it and act as that kind of stoic, <laughs> that, that stoic advisor on the other side to make sure things get done efficiently, then that's so helpful. 
And, and you and I are a little bit different in that regard. I think one of us is kind of cool, calculating, and even keel, and the other one is Dennis. And <laughs> so, I, I mean, I have to be, I have to be conscious that, that I, I tend to tune in to things a little bit more, and I have to regulate that and make sure that I don't get overly emotional and, and can, can stay regulated properly. But this also brings up one of the more frequent questions that we receive from investors who are otherwise have done very well for themselves when they have a lot of cash to invest. And the question is, do I put it all to work now or do I do it over time? Do I just kind of drip into the market over time? What's the right approach? And there's been a lot of academic research on this that's been studied and the studies come out and say, it usually doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Typically, it's a little bit more favorable to invest it all at once. But this is a frequent question, right? Katie, due to that same reason, people are worried that, am I going to make a mistake? If I put it all in, what if the market drops tomorrow? Then I've made a mistake. And you're kind of that fear of regret in the future mm -hmm. is, a, is a big issue. So sometimes we will spread it out just so they can manage their anxiety over that outcome. But truthfully, especially if you're putting it into diversified stocks and bonds in line with your tolerance and, and your portfolio plan, putting it all to work at once. But people will sit on that cash for a really long time just pondering that question. Should I do it at once or do it over time? Mm -hmm. Because they put that task on themselves. I think that's part of it too. Yes. Because if you're holding yourself as the person that needs to actually make something happen, the timing of that can be really, really challenging to get yourself to do it. Something that you just mentioned, Dennis, is, sorry, I'm trying to remember the, the exact phrasing that you just said a couple of minutes ago, but a along the lines of managing that anxiety mm -hmm. and when things need to be done, that's a really important recognition that, that sometimes sometimes we do need to bring a modified approach to manage that anxiety the right way. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's fine. At the end of the day, we want our clients to be able to sleep well, not just today, but in the future, looking back at what they did, like we want to manage those, those future regrets as well. And so it's always a balancing act, but I think that is absolutely part of the equation when trying to move forward with somebody's financial plan, financial strategies. Mm -hmm. You know, another thing that we hear smart investors say, especially as they maybe grow in their wealth, they grow in their sophistication, they often look to think that there's something different or special that they need to be doing with their investments. Yeah. Someone said to me one time, asked me to review their portfolio, and they were sitting in a set of ETFs and index funds, and it looked relatively appropriate. I mean, it, there was nothing that jumped out at me to say this is you know, off, completely off base. But their question was, but this is what everybody has. I have X dollars. Shouldn't I be doing something a little bit more special? And we had work to do to talk back from that because special does not mean better. Right. And the special often means costs more, less liquidity, all sorts of just layers of things that you maybe don't have when you're taking a more simplified approach. Yes. I, I think that is a misconception. I think it's a potential misconception, but it's also, it is fed into us all the time everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now that you're at this point, now here are the, the great opportunities that are in front of you, but they don't always... Like you said, sometimes it's, it's adding complication, it's taking away some liquidity, it's adding expenses, and it's not always worth it and it's not always suitable for, for everyone, even at a certain level of financial sophistication. Mm -hmm. How about this mistake that I think 
you and I have both experienced working with some families is sticking with what they're comfortable with. For instance, we've had opportunities to work with different executives over the years at maybe some publicly traded companies. And there's a high comfort level with holding a a lot of that company, that corporate stock, but also oftentimes within that industry. So somebody working in pharmaceuticals might be very comfortable buying pharmaceutical stocks, not as comfortable branching outside of that. So you get a, a significant concentration risk within the business, but also the industry or real estate. We see it often to people that are very comfortable in real estate, having a large real estate portfolio and not always recognizing some of the the risks that could be present in either of those places. And it shows up with our small business owner clients as well. And they, they, something they know very well, or maybe it's, it's, you know, adjacent to that. Like you have a lot of cash in this closely held business of yours, and that makes up a good portion of your balance sheet. If you're coming to me and saying you want to take another large pile of cash and put it into real estate on or near that business or something along those lines, that's another large illiquid thing. So are we really diversifying here or is it just adding layers and depth in an area where maybe you don't need more layers and depth, Mm -hmm. but you're right. But your comfort level is there because you know it, you see it. Um, real estate is definitely one that comes up a lot. Because mm-hmm. at a lot of these things, I think, in order to kind of combat some mistakes that we see out there, it's zoom out, take a look at how that shows up today and also in the future, get some outside voices, some outside opinions, and be willing to, to listen to something contrary to how you think about things. Yes. I think for the most part, just opening up the lines of communication and, and talking about it. When when smart investors are trying to make decisions, they try and gather information, right? There's a lot of information out there. If you, if you want it, it's reams of information on a particular fund or a stock or anything else. But the back test, when you back test a strategy, oh. you have to be so careful about that. Oh my goodness. I remember early on in my career, I remember having tools like Morningstar where you could plug in models and see how it would have done over the three, five, and 10 year past periods. And at the time, I felt like I had to use that as a crutch because a client would ask or a prospective client would ask, how did this do in the past? And I'd have to have a good answer. So you'd look for four and five star rated funds or a strategy that did better than another strategy. But as I've grown in my confidence, I really push back on backtesting anymore, unless it's very specific circumstances where you would use it. But if you're going to use it as a decision framework, it's fraught with with risk because you're looking in the rearview mirror. Right. And you end up chasing the thing that's done well, which, you know, history tells us it's not going to be that same thing that's going to do well going forward consistently. Mm -hmm. So I completely agree. And the reality is, I mean, there are large market trends over large periods of time that happen. And even in the past couple of decades, we've had a a couple of major shifts in trends, but we still have not gotten through a a lot of cycles that could happen. And to assume what happened the last 10 years will be reflective of the next 10 years is not always a fair assumption. Anytime you try to take something, for instance, and, and compare it to large cap technology stocks over the last 10, like it's not going to look like a good investment. <laughs> it yes. doesn't matter what compared to large cap technology stocks. Like it's, it's not going to be a good investment for the most part. But looking out over the next 10 years, it may very well be. Like we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And, and so to, to get back to that, we need bits and pieces of a lot of diversified assets 
in a manageable structure where we can dial up, dial down the risk over time, because we, we can't just assume that the leader before is going to be the leader going forward. Yeah. And it's totally understandable that, that a smart person is going to look for answers. Mm-hmm. They're going to look for what, what's going to give me the evidence that something is going to work. And, and history, it might be where they go. But the other thing they might look for are rules. Yeah. And we've talked before about this idea that successful investing is more like biology than it is physics. In physics, there are rules that if this happens, that happens. Force and reaction and, and the laws of physics, there are no laws of investing. It's a, it's a human-driven market. It's, it's humans making decisions. It's emotions. We overshoot to the upside and we overshoot to the downside all the time. And there's not an equal and opposite reaction. If interest rates go up a half a percent, something different is going to happen this time than it happened last time. Yes. Because the world is different. You are different. You know, what's the, no man ever walks through the same river twice. So thinking about it as a biological system that does not have hard and fast rules, I think should be liberating for smart investors, because you don't have all the answers. The conditions are different. You have to be more of a, of a physician making a diagnosis mm-hmm. than a physicist who's running experiments with certain laws that are in place. Right. And I think that's really good to recognize too, because you don't have to be right all the time. And in most people's financial lives, you don't always have to have all the answers. You don't always have to time everything, pick everything just perfectly in order to be successful. It's more about not making the big mistakes than it is getting the right answer all the time. And I use, I use this selectively with people when they're thinking of making a particular financial decision, and maybe I'm not that keen on advising them to do so, and I'm just kind of walking through how they're thinking about it. I'll ask them, okay, if you, if you want to do X with your money, what happens if you're right? What happens if you're wrong? And have you ever been wrong? <laughs> that's the the kicker (laughs) it's a little it's a little direct so i i I haven't used that one on you yet katie so it's just but but i I think it just gets that okay if if you're right and you add another x percent to your performance or, or something else great if you're wrong and you you've got your money locked up for a long period of time or god knows what else it's just thinking through the implications and then that last very humbling question which we all have to realize that things can, are out of our control sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you describe the market activity as a whole bunch of humans making decisions because that, that truly is what it is. I mean, and you cannot make sense of everything all the time in the markets. So we, we have to be able to take a step back and understand more of the big picture and not get caught up in, in too much of the nuance or the weeds. Yeah. We're going to close on, on this point. I'm going to give you a minute to ponder this and I'll, I'll share mine first, Katie. But think about when one of our very intelligent investor clients has come to us and you've been able to give good advice to them that, that helped to, to steer them in a particular direction. I'll, I'll give you mine. And it really is one of the most incredible laboratory uh, events that I'll, I'll probably have in my career. And it was the la- third week of March in 2020 just the depths of the market at the beginning of the pandemic, when the market was off, what, 40% in just a matter of weeks, and the world was shutting down. And we were getting calls from people who were very successful in their lives. They're, they're calm and composed most of the time, but they were very emotional, very scared, wondering which end was up. Is this ever going to turn around? And I'm proud of how confident our team was in staying even keel 
and cool through that in helping people to navigate. I think that was an important moment and built our confidence in kind of what our role should be to help smart investors stay the course, because that's that's another thing. You want to stay invested. The portfolio that works best is the one that you can stick with. And helping them stick with it through that event, I think, was really important and really helpful for my professional confidence, too. Absolutely. I think I think periods like that help us grow as advisors and communicators. I think somewhat similar, I think some great experiences that I've had in working with clients and where I, I felt like I've brought a lot of value. It's a lot of the planning work last year, a lot of the planning work in that first half of 2020. Uh, my inclination is to go to the financial plan and take a look at real numbers, real time and in, in the depths of those market pullbacks and drawdowns to see where are we at? Are you still okay? Do we need to tweak? And to help build that confidence that we are looking at the bear market scenario. And even in good, strong periods in the market, we'll stress test the financial plan. And it's it's still an uncomfortable place to see the dollars go down, but to be able to reflect on, okay, you're still in a solid financial position. And then to shift the conversation to say, all right, what are the productive things we can do right now? You know, there's always something productive you can do in any market cycle at any time without saying everything's going to be rosy and great and everything else. I I do think that we bring a certain level of optimism to the the planning and investing process, because I, I truly believe there's always something positive that you can do. And I truly believe that a good plan goes a long way. Well said. I think we'll, we'll wrap today with this idea, which is, first of all, everyone makes mistakes. We do. Uh, investors do. There is no right answer. We never get them, them all right. I would just say reflecting on those mistakes and the why behind them. Was it emotionally driven? Was it something where maybe you were in a silo and not appreciating that there were other voices that could come in? There are a lot of ways to reflect upon the types of mistakes that you make and then working with an advisor to maybe help be an observer of those and to work through the decision-making process. And to borrow a line from Cheryl Crow's song, you know, embracing your favorite mistake is, is, a, is a good thing for investors to think through sometimes. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Simply Why, a podcast about money and purpose. We hope you enjoyed getting to know us, how we approach leading a financial advisory practice, and the work we do every day to help families and couples make important financial decisions. Morton Brown Family Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This podcast is designed for educational and informational purposes and not intended as investment advice. More information can be found at www.mortonbrownfw.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I have no idea what Cheryl Crow song that was. I, I don't remember things. Um, <laughs> Again, now you tell me. So. <laughs> <laughs>